Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of ChrisMasterjohnPhD.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, where we are now in our seventh in a series of lessons on the antioxidant defense system. Last time, we started looking at glutathione, and glutathione is so multifaceted, and there are so many things to say about it, that I've split the lessons on glutathione into two. So now in the second lesson, we are going to zero in on how nutrition and metabolism affect glutathione status so that we can brainstorm a whole bunch of practical strategies to improve our glutathione status. So let's start by looking at how glutathione is synthesized and how its synthesis is regulated. Shown on the screen, we can see that the first step in glutathione synthesis is to take glutamic acid, or glutamate, and join it to cysteine. These are two amino acids. This reaction is catalyzed by an enzyme called gamma-glutamyl cysteine synthetase. In modern literature, literature, that enzyme is more often called glutamate cysteine ligase. So this first enzyme joins the first two amino acids together, and then the third amino acid, glycine, comes in and is joined to make glutathione, and that second enzyme is glutathione synthetase, referring to the fact that it synthesizes glutathione. Now, both of these enzymes are regulated. However, the first enzyme is usually, almost always, the limiting enzyme and so its regulation is relatively more important in determining how much glutathione is synthesized. And there's a relatively simple reason for this, and that is that gamma-glutamyl cysteine has no other purpose except to be used for glutathione. So why would you ever make more gamma-glutamyl cysteine than you need? You would prefer not to. Therefore, you place the primary burden of regulation on the first enzyme. Insulin increases the activity of that enzyme. Why? Because insulin is a symbol of our short-term energy status, and the synthesis of glutathione is energy intensive. When we say that insulin stimulates the synthesis of glutathione, what we mean is a high ratio of insulin to glucagon increases the synthesis of glutathione. A high ratio of insulin to glucagon is best maintained by a robust intake of carbohydrate. If you have evidence of insulin resistance, you need to try to reverse it. And if you're chronically restricting carbohydrate or chronically eating a low-calorie diet, then it's reasonable to say eating more calories and eating more carbohydrate could be a way of improving glutathione status if it's poor. Second thing is that oxidative stress increases this. The reason for that is simple. If you have oxidative stress, you need more glutathione. Now, we could smoke cigarettes to get more glutathione, but that would cause a lot of the oxidative stress from that would cause a lot of damage. So there's a lot of interest in the principle of hormesis, which is that a little bit of a bad thing is good for you because of how you respond to it. And so a lot of supplements like milk thistle or sulforaphane or other things like that cause a small dose of oxidative stress that leads to a greater adaptive response. So our response to increased glutathione synthesis is greater than any potential harm 
And so that's the basis for those supplements. Similarly, we could say a diet rich in fruits and vegetables is going to contain a lot of polyphenolic and other compounds that do the exact same thing and through our hormetic principle will increase the synthesis of glutathione. Finally, glutathione itself exerts negative feedback on this system and that's because if you already have enough glutathione, why would you spend your energy making more of it? It's simply a way to self-regulate the process. So there are three primary things being communicated. One is, can you make glutathione? Do you have enough energy? And that's being communicated by insulin. The second thing is, do you need glutathione? And that's being communicated by oxidative stress or hormesis. And then the third thing is, do you have enough glutathione? If you respond to that, those things by saying, I have enough energy to make it, I need it, I'll make it, then once you make it, glutathione is going to come back and exert negative feedback and say, you got me, you don't need to keep trying, here I am, and you'll, bring, you'll ramp down the synthesis of glutathione in response to that. So that's the regulation, but other things that we could say about this is, hey, you just need enough of the raw materials. You need these amino acids. And when we look at glutamate, glutamate is the most abundant amino acid in the diet. So as long as you eat enough protein, you're going to get enough glutamate. If, you, if glutamate becomes limiting, it's probably because you either have a frank protein deficiency or you have some disease state where you're wasting away protein. But if it gets to the point where you need to replenish glutamate to synthesize glutathione, then you probably also need to replete cysteine and glycine as well. We can get cysteine from two ways. One is to get cysteine itself from dietary protein, and the second is to convert methionine into cysteine. You can see on the left methionine and on the right cysteine. And you can see that if you want to convert methionine to cysteine, you need to get rid of the methyl group and then you need to shorten the chain behind the sulfur by one carbon. That is a multi-step process that uses homocysteine as an intermediate and requires vitamin B6 in order to go forward. So if you were deficient in vitamin B6, you'd compromise your ability to get cysteine from methionine. But if we assume that everything in the system is working adequately, we would look at these together and say that there's a certain requirement for sulfur amino acids for glutathione synthesis. These two amino acids are the only two amino acids in the diet that have sulfur and they collectively are known as the sulfur amino acids. If we think about sulfur amino acids and nutrition, we could say that animal proteins contain about twice as much sulfur amino acids as plant proteins. And when you combine that with the fact that animal foods are richer in protein than plant foods, and that that protein tends to be a little bit more absorbable, then you can imagine that someone who's eating an omnivorous diet is getting a lot more sulfur amino acids than someone who's eating a vegan diet. Nevertheless, the evidence that we have suggests that if you eat one gram of protein per kilogram body weight, which is a little bit higher than the RDA, but less than what most people are eating. The RDA is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. A lot of people are eating a lot more than that. If you're getting that amount 
And if you get 24 milligrams of sulfur amino acids per day, you're probably getting enough protein and sulfur amino acids to synthesize glutathione. If you look at someone who's eating a plant-based diet and they're meeting one gram of protein per kilogram body weight, they're probably getting that. So it's entirely possible that you could construct a vegan diet, whether unintentionally or intentionally, that has less than a gram protein per kilogram body weight, and that's probably going to compromise glutathione synthesis. But you could also relatively easily put together a vegan diet that contains that amount of protein, and at that point, according to this data that we have, you're not going to be, sulfur amino acids are not going to be limiting. Now, we have to keep in mind some caveats here. So this data is derived from people under very standard conditions where sulfur amino acids were switched out of the diet for glycine, and they looked at to what extent can you replace glycine with sulfur amino acids and keep improving glutathione status. Well, first of all, that assumes that glycine is provided in great excess of what's needed for glutathione synthesis, and there are reasons to doubt that that's the case. So at some point you could say, well, maybe if you kept glycine the same, or if you increased glycine and sulfur amino acids, you could have gotten even more glutathione. But you could also say, well, what happens when you take those people and they get sick? They're going to make more glutathione. What happens if you take those people and you expose them to oxidative stress, or you expose them to hormesis, through a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, or through supplements that are designed to upregulate glutathione synthesis. All of those things could change how much sulfur amino acids you need. So we shouldn't take these numbers as gospel and assume that no one's gonna benefit from more sulfur amino acids. That may well not be the case. There's another problem with this data, which is that in the study, they were providing cysteine as free cysteine. And free cysteine actually isn't that great a way of improving glutathione synthesis. We actually know that free cysteine causes oxidative stress and can deplete glutathione under certain conditions when it's supplemented. And for that reason, most supplements designed to support glutathione status use N-acetylcysteine. This modifies the cysteine molecule in a way that prevents it from causing oxidative stress. So if you look, if you take the same doses of N-acetylcysteine and cysteine, N-acetylcysteine will often boost glutathione status when free cysteine depletes glutathione status because of that difference. The N-acetyl group is very easily removed and the glutathione can flow very, the cysteine can flow very naturally into glutathione synthesis without accumulation in a form that's gonna cause oxidative stress and deplete glutathione. So that in and of itself seems to suggest that actually we could benefit from more sulfur amino acids. It's just a means of how safely can we deliver them into our cells. Now let's come back to this diagram of glutathione synthesis to gain some insight into how we could answer the question, do we ever need more glycine? When you have glutamate and cysteine form gamma-glutamyl cysteine, if it is not used for the synthesis of glutathione, it will be enzymatically cleaved 
to cysteine, which goes up here, and to 5-oxoproline, which can then be enzymatically converted into glutamate. And a portion of this 5-oxoproline is excreted into the urine under those conditions. Now, there are several reasons why you could have the excretion of 5-oxoproline. For example, if you don't have enough glycine, gamma-glutamyl cysteine accumulates and generates 5-oxoproline. Maybe you have enough glycine, but you have a genetic defect in glutathione synthetase. You can't use the glycine, and so that generates 5-oxoproline. Or maybe you have acetaminophen toxicity, and the acetaminophen toxicity is taking glutathione out of the body. You're losing this negative feedback, and all of a sudden this first step massively increases. So you have accumulation of gamma-glutamyl cysteine, and even though you have glycine, you don't have enough glycine to keep up at this, keep up with this greatly increased rate of gamma-glutamyl cysteine production. So gamma-glutamyl cysteine accumulates and generates 5-oxoproline. So there are several explanations for why 5-oxoproline could accumulate in the urine, but no matter which one you're looking at, it's always because you have more gamma-glutamyl cysteine relative to your ability to add glycine to it to make glutathione. So if we can rule out factors that would cause glutathione depletion and genetic defects in glutathione synthetase, we could use urinary excretion of 5-oxoproline as a marker of not having enough glycine to synthesize glutathione. Shown on the screen is data from a study where omnivores were compared to vegetarians, and the vegetarians had 88% more 5-oxoproline in their urine, suggesting that maybe they didn't have enough glycine for glutathione synthesis. As a caveat to that, I want to show this data from a different study, which showed that compared to omnivores, vegetarians had slightly more glutathione in their red blood cells than omnivores did, although vegans had less. So that could be because the vegans were not consuming enough total protein or sulfur amino acids. Maybe the vegetarians were getting enough protein because they were eating eggs and milk, but they were also getting the benefit of a fruit and, rich, uh, fruit and vegetable rich diet that was increasing glutathione synthesis or other antioxidants in the diet that were sparing glutathione. Whatever the cause may be, these data don't show us that the omnivores had better glutathione status. They didn't measure glutathione status in the study. They just show us that the omnivores were excreting less oxoproline in their urine. Now, you could say maybe that's because the vegetarians had all these beneficial compounds and fruits and vegetables in their diet that were upregulating the first step in glutathione synthesis, and that's why they were excreting oxoproline. But that doesn't change the fact that if they're excreting the oxoproline, that means that the second step of glutathione synthesis was not able to keep up with the first, and it's reasonable to say, regardless of the cause, maybe more glycine would have helped. So actually, the people who did this study took a sample of the vegetarians, and they fed them more and more protein until they achieved the protein intake of the omnivores. And the urinary excretion of 5-oxoproline is shown on the screen. As they went up, 
in grams per day of protein intake to 70 grams per day, you can see that their oxoproline dose dependently decreased. And that provided evidence of the principle that the because the protein intake of the vegetarians was lower than that of the omnivores, they weren't getting enough glycine to synthesize to maximize their own synthesis of glutathione. Now, if we come back to this diagram, we never nevertheless can say, well, these omnivores were excreting a bunch of oxoproline. Could the omnivores have benefited from more glycine? Well, if we look at where glycine is found in foods, shown on the left is tofu versus chicken breast, chicken skin, and chicken bones. If we compare tofu and chicken breast, there's not really a difference in the percentage glycine of total protein. Granted, vegetarian diets often are lower in protein, but as a percentage of protein, there's not much difference. If I were to include more plant proteins and more animal proteins, it would become even more apparent that there really is no difference at all. However, if you look at chicken breast, skin, and bones, controlling for chicken, you go from 5% to 16% to 31% glycine. And that's because of the presence of collagen in the skin and bones, which is about a third glycine. So you're actually eating six times more glycine from bones than you are from the chicken breast. If you look at traditional diets all across the world, one thing that's very clear is that traditional diets were omnivorous, and to the extent they included animal foods, they included the bones and the skin and the other parts of the animal, whereas in our modern diets, we've grossly left this principle for boneless, skinless chicken breast, which isolates the low glycine content proteins. Not only that, but although this is really a subject that belongs in a lesson on methylation rather than a lesson on antioxidant capacity, it's also true that the methionine that's in the chicken breast the more you eat of it, the more it increases your need for glycine. So if you load up on the skinless, boneless chicken breast, you don't just have less glycine than if you ate the whole chicken. You need more glycine and are eating less glycine. So we could look at that and say, well, we, can't, we don't have any data showing that the oxoproline would have decreased even further in the urine of the omnivores had they eaten uh, had they eaten chicken skin or used bones in their cooking, but it's definitely reasonable to say that it probably would have. And so what that means is maybe the best of both worlds is actually to take a lesson from the vegetarians and to take a lesson from the omnivores and then to take a lesson from traditional diets and synthesize that into a big picture that says, Yes, we should eat the animal protein, but we should also eat the skin and bones, not just the muscle meat. And we should also emulate aspects of the vegetarian diet that allow us to reap the benefits of greater antioxidant intake and greater intake of these phytonutrients that are rich in fruits and vegetables that are going to upregulate the synthesis of glutathione, which is a subject that we're going to cover in much more detail in the next lesson. Now, if we look here, we can say not only what is the value of each of the raw materials, but what's the value of getting something like gamma glutamyl cysteine in the diet? 
And what we can see is that that has the ability to overcome any problems related to the first step. For example, what if you don't have enough insulin signaling because you're chronically restricting carbohydrate or because you have insulin resistance or you don't make enough insulin as in the case of type 1 diabetes or there's something wrong with your response to oxidative stress or you're either not responding correctly or haven't implemented a diet rich in fruits and vegetables and the right supplements to get the proper hormetic effect from all those. Well then, if you get gamma-glutamyl cysteine in the diet, that can bypass that and be of some value. In the 1980s, some investigators were studying the ability of whey protein to support the immune system of mice. And what they would do is they would provide an artificial stimulus to the immune system of the mice and look at the content of glutathione in their spleen. And if they didn't feed the whey protein, what would happen is immune cells would start rapidly multiplying in the spleen and consume all the glutathione available. If they provided whey protein, then there would be a lot more glutathione available and that would allow even greater replication of those immune cells. But then they stumbled upon this problem that they tried some new whey protein and it didn't work. So they tried to figure out why. And what you can see on the screen is data from one whey protein called Product X and data from another called Lacprodan 80 compared to casein as a control. And as you go through the bars, you see day two, three, four, five, six. And you either have increase as you go up or as you go down below 100, you have a decrease in the amount of glutathione content in the spleen. And you can see there's a lot of noise in this data. It goes down, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up. And that's probably representing the fact that you have glutathione synthesis on the one end and you have replication of the immune cells that are consuming the glutathione on the other. And so as that process continues, you have a lot of noise in the data. But you can see clearly that with product X, all the bars are up above 100%, and if you average the data, you have this enormous boost in glutathione status. Whereas with the other whey protein and with the casein, you have this net decrease in glutathione status in the spleen. So they looked at what's the difference between product X and Lacprodan 80, and it turned out that it was all about the heat and processing. If you head the... Now, all of this is pasteurized, by the way, but... Lacrodan 80 was produced in a way that involved extra heat and processing, and that extra heat and processing caused a massive obliteration to the ability of those proteins to stimulate glutathione synthesis. These authors then said, well, maybe this is due to the gamma-glutamyl cysteine bonds that are in whey protein, and to the fact that heat and processing eliminates their ability to survive the digestive process. So they scoured the literature for the sequences of thousands of food proteins and found that gamma-glutamyl cysteine bonds are only, form, are only found in whey protein and in egg white protein. And so they wrote in their paper, it may be noteworthy that from time immemorial, whey from raw milk and or undenatured raw egg white have been administered to children and to the sick as prophylactic or therapeutic measures in folk medicine. So I calculated an estimation of the glutathione boost that you could get from 8 ounces of milk. What we can see is that 10 compared to 5, pasteurization is cutting the ability of milk 
to boost glutathione status in half. Now, that doesn't change the fact that drinking milk still could give you a net boost in your glutathione status. It just means that raw milk would be twice as good. We can also get glutathione from foods. This is beneficial because, number one, it overrides any problems that we may have with glutathione synthesis, whether it's because of insulin resistance or carbohydrate restriction or something else. And number two, it provides all of the amino acids, including the glycine, that are needed for glutathione synthesis. You can see on the screen that glutathione is very vulnerable to heat and processing. If we go from raw spinach to cooked spinach to canned spinach, we have a dose-dependent decrease in glutathione content as we increase the heat exposure. If we look at raw peaches and canned peaches, we have almost 80% destruction of the glutathione in canned peaches. On the screen, we see raw fruit in blue and the juice derived from it in red. Orange juice retains a lot of its glutathione, but juicing it is still destructive. Keep in mind these are commercial juices and maybe this wouldn't be true if you're making your own juice at home. Grapefruit juice has all of its glutathione destroyed. Tomato juice has most of its glutathione destroyed. If we look across foods, one of the things that we can see is that glutathione is relatively more stable in protein-containing foods. And that's probably because if those foods are exposed to oxidative stress, the glutathione will bind to the proteins and that will prevent its oxidation. So what we find is that fruits and vegetables are very vulnerable to having their glutathione destroyed and meat is much less vulnerable. If we look across foods, the things that have the most cellular water are going to have the most glutathione. Why? Because glutathione is found in the aqueous portions of cells. So if we look at things like meat, glutathione is in the lean portion. If we look at things like fruits and vegetables, glutathione is in the lean portion. And when I say lean for fruits and vegetables, I mean the portions that are low in starch and the portions that are low in fat. If you consider an avocado, the fat is displacing a lot of the cellular water that contains the glutathione. If you look at a potato, the starch granules are doing the same thing. So low starch, low fat fruits and vegetables and the lean portions of meats are really good sources of glutathione. The meat, you have to be less concerned about cooking. The fruits and vegetables, you have to be really concerned about cooking. And you have to be super concerned about canning and commercial juicing and other forms of intense processing. All right, I hope you found this helpful. In the next lesson, we're going to talk about the principle of hormesis, how we can boost not only glutathione synthesis, but also the synthesis of everything else involved in antioxidant defense. I hope you're looking forward to the next lesson. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn.